Amen. Good morning. Good to see all of you this morning. Good to have those of you joining us from your homes either this morning or even sometime in the future when you watch our podcasts out there. Uh, before we get into the message this morning, just a couple of also quick reminders. I failed to mention these on Wednesday, and I wanted to make sure I started to announce these over the next couple of service times that we're together. On November the 16th, a Wednesday, the youth are having sort of like a Thanksgiving feast that night. So uh, this is directed especially to youth parents here in the room or maybe watching from home that our youth leadership would love it if uh, you could help them out with uh, some of that Thanksgiving feast that they want to uh, bring to the youth group that night on the 16th. So if you could reach out to our youth leadership team, anyone on that team, I know they would greatly appreciate you being a part of that sort of Thanksgiving evening that they're preparing for the youth group on Wednesday the 16th. And then the very next Wednesday, the 23rd, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, we're having our annual pie fellowship where everyone sort of brings their favorite you know, pie, and we all just uh, not only have our worship time and our time in the Word, but we also get to, you know, start, start developing those muscles for the next day, right? So if you are interested in being a part of that and bringing a pie, we need to coordinate this because as our church, you know, we, we started out really small and we didn't have to really worry about it, but now our church has grown and our Wednesday night has grown so much that we sort of need to coordinate it. So if you would like to bring a pie, would you please run that through Amanda Mason, our hospitality director, who's right over here, uh, and she'll be glad to sort of coordinate that. You know, we don't want to have like 20 pumpkin pies and no apple, right? <clears throat> no, I'm just teasing. Uh, but like last year, we had a great variety of pies last year. We had some peanut butter pies and coconut pies and course the, the regulars you know the the pumpkin and the and the apple and all that you can leave the mincemeat be behind you don't have to do that but anyway just saying all right we want to continue our series uh on the uh story of Jesus out of the gospel of Luke and so today we're going to be in Luke chapter 8 the first 25 verses and as you come to these 25 verses there's sort of little what you would call maybe uh, looking at it initially like disjointed sections of these 25 verses, this passage. But the more I got into it and immersed myself into it, I realized there is a thread that literally runs through this entire passage we're going to be looking at this morning. And it all has to deal with being responsive to Jesus to learning to not only follow him, but to respond to him as we follow him. That's part of being a disciple, and that's who Jesus is calling. He's, he's sort of building his team of disciples here now in the Gospel of Luke. And, and you really see this theme in a, in a couple of verses. Uh, in verse 8, Jesus says at the end, the one who has ears to hear had better listen. In other words, respond. In verse 15, he talks about this good soil we're going to talk about in a few minutes. And he says, the good soil is the one who, after hearing the word of God, clings to it 
with an honest and good heart responding to it. And then at the beginning of verse 18, he uses these words, listen carefully. Take care of how you respond, if you will, to the moving of God and to the word of God. So God's doing the same thing here today, a couple thousand years later. He has been with us through our worship time, and he's going to be with us as we get into his word. And everything that God is doing, both corporately and individually, he's wanting us to respond to him as we sense him moving and hear his voice and all of that. And so that's what God is calling us to today. So I want to begin then in the first three verses, looking at this great passage that, again, continues to develop for us the story of Jesus, the story of Jesus. In the first three verses, we see a couple of key things. One, Jesus is continuing to go and travel from town to town, preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. And remember, the kingdom of God at this point isn't a literal kingdom that will be here on earth one day that Jesus Christ will rule over. At this time in history and continuing even to this day, his kingdom is manifested in the hearts of those who've responded to him, okay? Now his rule and reign is over people, but it's not a physical, material kingdom yet. It's a spiritual, internal kingdom in each of our hearts. And God is calling us to be a part of his kingdom. And so that was a priority with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry, ministry preaching and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, that we can be a part of his kingdom, that, that God wants us to belong to him in a relational way. You'll also notice in the first couple of verses that it tells us that the 12, that, that initial group that he's called, it says the 12 were with him. It, it meant that they were tight with Jesus, that they were closely identified with him now, and they were following him closely. They were accompanying him everywhere he went. That's what a disciple is, someone who follows Jesus closely, who's tightly, you know, wound to him, to someone who's closely identified with him and who's accompanying him and following him everywhere he goes so that discipleship isn't just sitting down in a classroom and, and being taught, that's part of it, but it's really just living our lives every day following Jesus, but then note what Luke does. He then points out that many women were also his disciples. And, and the reason why this is significant is, remember, in that culture, in that day and age, that was not something that was open to women. That would have been very, very unusual. Women were not given that privilege to follow someone like Jesus, a rabbi, a teacher, if you will. That was just relegated to men. So even by his actions, Jesus is showing, I value women as much as I do men. And everywhere that Jesus went, he elevated women. You see, that's what Jesus did. And so Luke is pointing this out. Many women were following him. And he actually mentions three by name, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, who's married to the guy who's head over Herod's household, 
How cool is that? And Susanna. But then notice what he says at the very end of verse 3. He says, these women were some of the major supporters of the ministry of Jesus. And that they provided out of their own resources the ability for Jesus and his disciples to continue to travel from town to town, have the things that they needed as they went around Israel and as they proclaimed and preached and Jesus healed and all of these different things. They supported the ministry of Jesus. God is calling us to respond to him in that way as well today. That we value the work of God and and how God is building his kingdom today to the point where we want to be part of it and so we want to invest in it. We want to support the ministry of Jesus today just like those women did back then. And, And they thought that this work was so significant that they, in a sense, put their money where their treasure was, and they were very generous with their resources that they had been given. You know, sometimes as Christians today, we get this erroneous idea that most of the people who followed Jesus in those early days were very poor. Now, some of them didn't have a lot, but there were many of Jesus' followers, like Joanna, who would have actually been very wealthy because she was married to the head of Herod's household. And she would have had great resources to be able to support Jesus and his ministry. Jesus is saying today, do you value me and what I am doing in this world so much that you are willing to support my ministry in a very tangible way in some way? And I just want to say that as the pastor of this church, for the last 12 plus years now, uh, we, God has brought an amazing group of people who do support the ministry of Jesus here at this church. And not that this is the only ministry that you obviously or, or I can support. There's, there's many ways that we can support the ministry of Jesus, whether it's through supporting and praying for missionaries or, you know, home missionaries or foreign missionaries and all kinds of ministries out there that are worthwhile to support. But I just want to say from, from my perspective, I thank you for the support that you are giving to this church because God is using, I believe, our church to grow people and to bring people into the kingdom and to advance his kingdom. And and by your support, we are able to do that. If you all didn't support, then we couldn't do the things that we are doing. Even like the, you know, the Christmas gifts and things that we can bless someone like the, the church in Mexicali and whatnot that we do throughout the years. This is what you see in those first three verses. Not only that Luke mentions women who were part of Jesus' team as well, which was significant, but that Jesus was was using their resources that they were giving and and many different things coming in to be able to support his team as they traveled around and made an impact. So that's the first three verses. Then in verse 4 through verse 15, you have the largest section of this passage. And it all deals with this parable of the soils that Jesus is giving. So he's teaching here. And he wants to teach 
his disciples, his followers, something about his kingdom, but also about the importance of responding to his word properly. There's a lot we could talk about today, but I want to really get to the explanation of this parable that Jesus begins to give in verse 11. And you'll notice, first of all, Jesus says there that the seed is the word of God. And that everybody that he is using in this parable has heard the word of God. So in a sense, everyone's on level playing field there. It's not like some have heard the word of God and others haven't. Every last person that Jesus is using in this parable to illustrate a spiritual truth has heard the word of God. But what I want to say up front, and we're going to get to this a little bit more specific in just a moment, is this very sobering fact. And that is Jesus is basically saying that out of every four people that hear the word of God, one out of four responds in a fitting, proper way. Think about that. I mean, even just, let's just take the auditorium today. Look around and go, only one out of every four people here will actually respond in a proper way to the word of God. Now, I realize that's not hard and fast, but three of the four soils that Jesus is using, and he's using the soil here to represent a human heart. Three of the four soils here end up not being the kind of heart that a disciple for Jesus has. Only one does. Only one does. So let's talk about these hearts specifically right now. And that's why Jesus uses seed and soil, because remember, he lived in an agrarian society. People got the whole idea of farming and planting crops and all that. So he was using something that was very familiar to teach something that maybe wasn't as familiar. That's why he taught in parables. He would use something that people understood to teach a spiritual truth that maybe they wouldn't be able to grasp. And then Jesus even makes an amazing comment in verse 10. He turns to his disciples and he says, you have been given the opportunity to know the mysteries of the kingdom. Wow. He's saying, I have given you the capacity and the ability to be able to understand what I'm teaching. But not everybody gets that because they're not interested. They don't want to know. So they're not given that ability, that capability. That's another reason why Jesus says, I'm teaching in parables. It's actually an act of grace and mercy because the greater light one has, the more we are held responsible by God to respond to that light. But if I don't understand it, then I can't be held responsible for something I don't understand, you see. So let's get to these hearts or soils. The first in verse 12, I, I want to describe as the calloused heart. Jesus says this kind of heart or soil is the one where the word of God goes out, but it basically sits on the surface of the heart. There is no penetration into the heart at all. And that's why that seed just lays on top, and then Satan can come along and just sort of take that seed and take it out. They're not really, they hear it physically, but there's really no interest in responding to it or taking it in. And then Jesus adds this, in order to believe in me and be saved. 
So this soil then is describing someone who hears the word of God but never comes to salvation in Jesus Christ because their heart, the soil of their heart, is one that is so hard on the surface it will not allow the word of God to penetrate that soil. Okay, then let's go on to the second soil. In verse 13, Jesus describes what I'm going to call here the conflicted heart. The first is the calloused heart. The second is the conflicted heart. Because the reason I use that is Jesus says, now this is the heart that initially responds with joy in hearing the word of God. Man, they're like all excited when they begin to hear God's word and they begin to understand it. But then Jesus says, there comes a time because this word at least penetrates a little into that soil, but it's still very shallow. Because notice he uses the phrase, it has no root. So it, it's not the surface, but it doesn't penetrate hardly at all, and, and it's a very shallow penetration of that seed into the heart. So that, Jesus says, when a time of testing comes, and we all know testing is going to come, hard times are going to come, challenges are going to come, that they fall away because there's no root there. It's very shallow. And again, we see that. Now, this is not an unsaved person. This is a Christian. But this is someone who never becomes a disciple because of the shallowness of their heart and the conflictedness of their heart. You know, they, they believe, but they don't really trust, and they, they always go back and forth and, and have this idea of, yeah, do I really trust God? No, I really don't. And, and, you know, they have these times where it's like they're receptive, but then other times where they're just totally no depth, no depth, therefore no growth and no real fruit or harvest from that kind of heart. Then in verse 14, Jesus describes the third kind of heart or soil. And this one I'm going to describe as the crowded heart, the crowded heart. Because again, they take the word of God in, but then it says, or Jesus teaches, they become very preoccupied by worries of life and riches of life and the pleasures of life and what the world is offering them has captivated them more than what Jesus is offering them. And in a sense, then, he says it chokes the word. It literally suffocates the seed, if you will, and it cannot really, again, take root and do anything with. Now, again, this describes a Christian, not an unbeliever, someone who's taken in the word of God, but someone who will never, if they stay in that state and that heart stays there, they will never become a disciple, Christian, but not a disciple, because... There's just too much other stuff going on in their life. They, they can never get to a place where spiritual things and the things of Jesus becomes a priority to them consistently enough to have any traction in their life. There's always all these other things that are crowding out and choking what God wants to do. And boy, you and I have to be careful of that too because we live in a world of distraction. 
We live in a world where even as Christians, we can become preoccupied with so many other things. And we can even unintentionally sort of see Jesus and, and what he wants to do in our lives crowded out by the worries, the pursuits, and the pleasures of this world. Think of the rich young ruler who was so busy sort of building his own kingdom that he didn't have enough time for Jesus. But then we get to the one soil or the one heart that describes a disciple's heart. And Jesus says, this is good soil. And here's why. Because after they hear the word of God, notice he uses the phrase, they cling to it with an honest and good heart. It means when they lay hold of it, they don't ever let go of it. And then he goes on to say it's by persevering that they bear fruit in their life. That's important. They bear fruit with steadfast endurance. In other words, it's only when you and I are willing to persevere and keep at something long enough that we begin to see fruit. And so many Christians today, again, we get caught up in our culture that's the culture of, you know, instant gratification, and I've got to see immediate results, and if I don't see immediate results, I don't stick with something long enough, and then we just move, keep moving on to the next thing or the next big thing that comes down, and we never give something enough time and perseverance and endurance to truly see the fruit. Jesus is saying, it's only by persevering you will ever see fruit. Because there is no such thing as the quick fix when it comes to spiritual things and God's kingdom. And so Jesus is saying, I want you who are hearing this now to respond. But that means Jesus is talking about the condition of our heart and saying, our heart is synonymous with soil. And it really is, it's all about the soil. I mean, if you're a farmer or you know of someone who farms, it's always about the soil. The seed is going to do its work if the soil is good. And so Jesus is saying, I can preach till, you know, my voice goes out. I can teach until, you know, I don't have any breath left in my lungs. But it's not an issue with what you're hearing, it's where our heart's at. And is our heart at a place in our life right now where we are willing to receive the word of God and allow it to penetrate and to, to do its work that God wants it to do? Or are we like the calloused heart? No, it's going to stay on the surface. Or is it like the conflicted heart? It's going to penetrate a little bit, but it's always going to remain shallow. There's never going to be much depth to my life with God. Or is it going to be the crowded heart where I just allow anything and everything into my life all the time and my life is so crowded I cannot give priority to the things of God? Jesus wants us all to have that good heart that clings to his word and never lets it go. Response. Then you come to verse 16 through 18. Here Jesus is talking about light. Because he says, as you respond to me 
as I illuminate you, as I give you my light, I want you to shine. That's why he says, does someone light a light and then cover it over or hide it or conceal it? He said, no. You put it on a lampstand so it can be conspicuous so that when those enter the room, they can benefit from the light. That's what light's for, to give light not only to us, but to those around us. And so Jesus is saying, I want my people to respond to me and my working and my word so that you can be light and be my light so that I can sit you out there in a conspicuous place and people can benefit from the light that I'm giving you. God illuminates us so that we can be a blessing to others. That's what he wants his disciples to be. Now, in verse 17, he says, look, you don't have to be concerned as one of my followers that I'm not going to give you light or make things clear to you. That, that I, I, I'm not a God who's trying to play hide and seek with my light or my truth. I will make things evident. I will bring things out to you if you continue to follow me. But then he gives a warning in verse 18. He says, but if you don't use my light to illuminate others and to benefit others, then the light that you even think you have will be taken away. Because Jesus is basically giving us the principle, what we don't use, we lose. What we don't use, we lose. It's like a muscle. You don't use a muscle, it atrophies, it goes backwards. Jesus is saying, I'm not going to give you all this illumination if you're going to hide that light from others. I illuminate. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that God shares with us or everything that God does in our life, that, that everything has to be for someone else. It could be just between us and God. But here, generally speaking, Jesus is saying, but generally when I'm giving you light and I'm illuminating your heart and mind and, and allowing you to have insight and discernment and perception into who I am, and my, I'm wanting you to share that. I don't want you to keep that to yourself. I want you to be light so that I can set you all these different places and that so many other people then can begin to benefit and be blessed from the light that I give to you. I don't want you to keep it to yourself. That's a real challenge to us as a church, to always make sure that we are not only an oasis, if you will, that brings literal and spiritual refreshment to people, but that we are a lighthouse right here in this community. And God wants us to always be shining our light, literally his light, through us so that this community of people around us can see that the light of God is here. And, and, and if God begins to work in their life, and they respond to the little bit of light they're given, then God will continue to give them more light, and he will draw them to places like the Oasis and other churches in the area that have his light so that we can all continue to grow in his light because we are to be light in the Lord. But that only happens, again, when we're responding to him when he's illuminating us and lighting our lives up, 
and then we respond to it by being that light, then he'll just keep giving us more because that's the way God works. Then you come to this very interesting sort of, again, you would think it has no relationship to the other parts, this 19 through 21 uh, about Jesus' mother and brothers. And, and, and it says, you know, as he was ministering there, uh, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, but they can't really get to him because of the crowd. And so there's this sort of emissary that goes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are out there and they're trying to, you know, have an audience with you. And Jesus makes this, you know, statement in verse 21. He says, well, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and respond to it or obey it. Now, at first glance, we may think, is Jesus dissing his family? <laughs> no, in no way. But what he is doing is this. He is saying something that's very important for all of us to hear, and that is that being a part of my spiritual family is more important than any earthly relationship. Ooh, even we Christians don't like that. But Jesus is saying, listen, earthly relationships are fine, but make sure that the earthly relationships aren't the end-all, be-all. Make sure that you are related to me and that you have responded to me as your Savior and that you are part of my spiritual family. Because one day, if you're not part of my spiritual family, you and I will part ways for all of eternity. Let's talk about that for a moment. Jesus then is also telling us, our physical family has obviously great value. And it's not that Jesus doesn't want us to value our physical relatives, the people that we are related to by blood, if you will. But see, the thing that Jesus ran into and the things that we run into today are sort of similar, just maybe coming from a different place, but Jesus lived in a culture, especially in Israel, where it was like, oh, we're the ancestors of Abraham, so we're good. And Jesus is like, just because you're a Jew, just because you're related to Abraham, just because you have a certain bloodline, that's not enough. You need to place your personal faith in me as your Savior, and you need to be part of my spiritual family because just because you're related to Abraham isn't enough. You need to have the faith like Abraham had in me, and then you can be part of my spiritual family. But the other thing that Jesus here is talking about is the fact that we need to make sure that we also prioritize our spiritual family. Yes, our physical family is important. Our earthly family, our blood family is important. Jesus isn't saying it's not, but Jesus is saying that too often my followers make their physical family, their blood family, the end-all, be-all at the neglect of making their spiritual family any kind of priority. And he's saying, you realize something. And this is something we don't like to talk about. I get it. 
But not everybody in all of our physical families that we're related to by blood is going to be with us for all of eternity in heaven. But our spiritual family is. We're going to be with people for all of eternity because we have a mutual, if you will, faith in Jesus Christ that brings us together as brothers and sisters that sometimes our physical family will have to say, it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't exist. And that's why Jesus says, my mother and brothers aren't just those people that I'm related to by blood. My mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and obey it and respond to it because that's who I'm spending eternity with. And we don't know. We, we know that, obviously, Mary, <laughs> she's going to be in heaven. And we know that after his resurrection, some of his siblings did come to faith in him. But we don't know if all of Jesus' family and certainly his extended family ever all came to faith in him. So Jesus is saying, look, there's going to be some people that I'm related to down here on earth that I'm not going to spend eternity with because they never placed their faith in me. I'm more interested, Jesus says, in making sure that I'm continuing to build this spiritual family because we're the ones that's going to spend eternity together. And that needs to be a priority with us, just like our physical earthly families are. Then we get to the final section. Maybe for me, the favorite section of this passage. Jesus then says, hey guys, let's get in the boat and let's cross to the other side. And Jesus knew something because he's God. He knew that when he asked his disciples to get into this boat and go across to the other side that a storm was coming. There are times where Jesus will direct us down a path knowing that he's taking us into a storm. That's important because sometimes as Christians we think if I'm following Jesus, there won't be any storms in my life. No, sometimes God will intentionally put a storm in our path. And here's why. Because for God, it's a teachable moment for all of us. Because you know the story. It's right there in Luke 8, 22 through 25. Jesus gets in the boat, and soon after, he falls asleep. He's exhausted from ministering, right? And then this huge, violent storm comes up, so violent that, that water begins to fill the boat. And, and so at no time, too, can I say this? At no time is God minimizing the storm. No. It's a bad storm. It's really bad. And remember, some of these guys were fishermen. They were used to storms, right? But this must have rocked their world. And so they begin to freak out. They run to Jesus and like, wait, master, master, wake up. We're about to die. And that might not have been an exaggeration. That maybe so. I, I don't know. I want you to know something. Jesus didn't wake up when the storm came. You know what awakened Jesus in this passage? The cries of his disciples. I want you to remember that. It wasn't the storm that woke Jesus up from his sleep. It was the cries of his disciples when they were in trouble. That's who Jesus is. 
He will always respond to the cries of his people when we call out to him and when we cry out to him and when we pray to him. He's always there for us. And he gets up, and the Bible says he rebuked the wind and the waves and said, be calm. And they were dead calm. Still, it went from maybe one of the worst storms that these disciples had ever seen or been through to total stillness. And then Jesus said to them, where is your faith? And remember, faith is responding to who we know God to be and what he's already told us. And, and notice here, again, Jesus isn't talking about the size of their faith because the Bible says we can have faith the size of a mustard seed, and that's okay. The more important thing isn't the size of our faith, it's the object of our faith, which is why Jesus says, where is your faith? You should be trusting me. You should be putting your confidence in me. And yes, you are in the midst of a terrible storm, but I'm with you. Therefore, you should not be afraid because faith and fear are mutually exclusive. And Jesus is trying to move his disciples from fear to faith. Jesus is doing the same thing today. He's trying to move his people from living in fear of anything to faith. And what Jesus is teaching here by, in a sense, even taking them through this storm literally, is he's saying, look, I know as my disciples, you will be in some terrible storms in your life. I may even intentionally put you on a path where you will pass through a storm because I want to teach you something. I want to move you from being afraid in any situation that you will uh, confront in your life to being a person of faith in me that no matter what kind of storm you're going through, if you know that I'm with you and that I'm in your boat, you have nothing to fear. Nothing. And God may be wanting to encourage you with that today. I don't know what all of you are dealing with or going through in your life right now, but you may be in the midst of a life storm, and it's bad. But if you've got Jesus in your boat, if you have Jesus, then Jesus is just saying, trust me, trust me. Even in the worst of storms, even if it's a storm that one day will take our lives and be the entrance to glory. We know that the Bible tells us that even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have nothing to fear because he is with us, our good shepherd, and he will literally take us by the hand through that time of death and, and welcome us into his forever kingdom. We never have anything to fear. Even death itself has been conquered by Jesus. And then the disciples make this statement. Again, a phrase you've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke and will continue to see. Who then is this? That he can command the wind and the water and it 
responds to him. It obeys him because he's the Lord and he's the Lord over all of creation and it will respond to him. Who then is this? Ah, it's a question we all have to answer. And how we answer that question really determines how we respond to him. Who is he to us? Who is Jesus to us? And Jesus right now has been moving and working since about 9 o'clock. And he's been speaking things out in this room and into your homes and into our lives. And he is saying to all of us, will you respond to me? Because I'm Jesus. I'm the King of kings and Lord of lords. I am the Lord of glory. I'm the Lord of hosts. Where is your faith? Trust me. Respond to me. Follow me. Believe me. Put your faith in me. Exalt me. Praise me. Worship me. Acknowledge me. But respond to me as I'm moving and working in your lives. I'm going to ask Nicole and our worship team to come. Folks, this is our time. And, and not to, you know, let you know what we're going to be singing, but it's right here. We have such an awesome God. We have such an amazing God. And, and do we really believe that? Do, do we know this is who he is. Who then is this? We all have to answer. Who is Jesus to us? And if he is that amazing, awesome God, then let us respond in a proper and fitting way. Jesus said, the one who has ears to hear had better listen, had better take hold of what I'm saying and get it. God wants us to get, hit, get it this morning by getting him this morning. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray and we're going to have some time with God this morning. Father, you have revealed yourself to your people today and to those maybe here or from home who are not your people yet. And you are saying to all of us, I am a God that demands response. And every time I reveal myself to human beings, a response is required. It might be a negative response, but it'll still be a response. But God is calling us today to a positive response, to be that soil of our heart that's that good heart that takes that in and clings to it, God, and believes it. So, Lord, today, may you exalt yourself in our homes and in this auditorium and in our lives and in our hearts and in our minds today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.